Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. It's always good to gather and to open God's Word. If you'll turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Yes, we are still in that chapter, and yes, we are still talking about false teachers. You say, Rod, is this subject ever going to end? Well, there are more things that God wants you to know in this chapter, so that is what we will look at today. And I don't know that we'll finish chapter 2 today, but we will certainly finish it next week and move into chapter 3. Same theme, but just some different uh, points are brought out in that chapter, because this chapter is dealing with the character of these false teachers, how we, we've learned how we are to recognize them and to understand them, and we understand how God feels about them. I mean, all of that has come, very, come across to us very clear. We learned in verse 1 of chapter 2 that um, they come into the church Um, infiltrate the church. They're agents of Satan. They infiltrate the church, um, and their intention is to deceive. Their intention is to um, bring in heresy. That's their intention, to, to pull you away from the truth. You see that in verse 1, and then all through this chapter, it's just been going through and talking about several things regarding their character. We saw last week, you may recall, look in verse 10, we said last week they're arrogant. Remember this, arrogant, they're arrogant, and how they deal with heavenly majesties. Uh, You can go back and listen to this, but the point we said, that's demons, we're talking about demons. We're talking about really, uh, just the. I'm not sure exactly all that Peter has in mind here, but we can say, I believe, if you look around us, false teachers really think they have power over demons. They talk about demons as if they can bind them, as if they can uh, rebuke them, as if they can somehow talk to them with some kind of uh, self-authority. They believe that Christ has given us that power and that authority to control the demonic world, and they use a lot of that in their um, warfare ministries, and nowhere in the Scripture are we told to do any of that. There's almost this arrogance about this power over the demonic world, when really it's a, continu- it's a powerful world and it's, uh, the, God has given Satan power, uh, the prince of the power of the air. Um, not even the holy angels do that, we're told in the next verse, verse 11. Not even the holy angels do that. Uh, nowhere are we told to carry on that kind of air, uh, activity with the demonic world to think we have that kind of power over them. Yes, God does. And yes, God will one day bind Satan. For a thousand years, we're told in Revelation chapter 20. But that's not our power. It's God's power. If you want to get rid of a demon in your life, come to Christ. Preach the gospel. There are no one another's that tell me to cast demons out of one another. Christians don't have demons. Yes, demons do seek to influence us. Yes, there is a demonic world. I'm not denying any of that, but uh, to act like there's a demon behind every bad thing I do or every sickness that I get. The next thing was in verse 13, I said they were pleasure seekers. They are, notice, um, they, they they pollute Christian fellowship. They engage in public wickedness in the daytime. He calls them stains and blemishes. They have eyes of adultery. They can't control their fleshly passions. Then verses 15 and 16, they're greedy. They have gone the way of Balaam. 
They've not gone the right way. They've gone the way of Balaam. Balaam, that prototype, a false prophet. They've gone that direction. The one who would prophesy for money, who would say whatever was needed to be said just to get money. Uh, that's who he's talking about in verses 15 and 16. They don't want to go the narrow way. They want to go the broad way. Remember Jesus said that in Matthew 7, there's a narrow way, few are those who find it. There's a broad way, lots of people going down the broad way. And false teachers are the main ones standing at the gate of the broad way to take people down the broad way. False gospel, no repentance. Come as you are, stay as you are. No change, no nothing. No cost, no price to pay. Just come. And this morning, we're going to now look at verses 17 through 19, and here the emphasis changes. Now we're going to talk about their teaching a little bit. We're going to talk about the impact of their teaching. Um, We're going to talk about the character of their teaching. And so it changes a little bit in these verses. Verse 17 through 19, let me read these. These, referring to those who have gone the way of Balaam, these false prophets, are springs without water, in midst driven by a storm. Uses some poetic language here, actually. Springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved, always inserting something about hell. He always does this throughout this letter, uh, this chapter. For whom the black darkness has been reserved, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Turn to that passage we read earlier, that was read earlier in our scripture reading in 2 Timothy 3.16. Let me just remind you of a couple things that are said in that. In that passage was read uh, at the beginning of our service today. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. You're familiar with this verse, these two verses. Just a reminder of the nature of Scripture, that it's God-breathed. That's what the word inspired is, breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. You're familiar with these verses. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In 2 Timothy 3, Uh, Then we go down in verse 1 of chapter 4. I solemnly charge you uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, preach the word. That's what we do. We preach the word. Be ready when it's popular, when it's unpopular. In season, out of season, preach it all the time. Never stop preaching it. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Paul, this is his last, uh, sort of like he, he's going to die soon after he writes this letter. And basically he's saying, this is what you're to do, to preach the word. Never stop preaching it. People may not like it. People may say, I don't want to hear that anymore. Tell me nice stories. Entertain me. But whatever you do, don't open that Bible. Don't talk about the Bible so much. He says, no, you preach it no matter whether they like it or not. You just keep preaching it because that is God's breathed word. That's not man's opinion. These aren't man's ideas. It's God's breathed word. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And I, I've said this before, we, we looked at this passage once before, but 
And he's saying, Timothy, he's saying there's coming a time when these false teachers will get so much influence in the church that they will turn people's hearts away from an appetite for the truth. And they will be looking for uh, teachers to tickle their ears, to say pleasant things, to say things they want to hear. They don't want to hear the words of God. And that's exactly who Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 2. Those are the kinds of teachers that have come on the scene. They have given ear-tickling sermons. Uh, Myths, he calls them. Their own ideas, their own imaginations, their own visions. They have moved away from the inspired word of God. And they're simply just speaking from their own minds. And that's how he's going to show it. We're going to see that now as we look at these. Look at the first point I have. Go back to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17. These are springs without water and mitts driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. He uses like two poetic expressions you would think of in the desert, okay? Middle East, you think, just think desert. Desert conditions, very dry, very dry climate, not a lot of sources of water. People get thirsty, travelers get thirsty. And imagine coming up on a spring, a spring that is supposed to give you water when you get there. And you get there and there's no water. The promise of water is there because there's a spring. But you get there and you're disappointed because there's no water in the spring. That's the idea. Giving a promise and it leads to disappointment. Um, you, you, you see them, you see it in his, his next uh, point as well. A mist driven by a storm you think of a clouds forming and you've seen this happen in Tallahassee only in Tallahassee if they get dark that usually does rain but there sometimes they would get they would form storm is coming and nothing drops no rain the promise wow looks like we might get some rain and they just get on blown on by it gets foggy, mist, it gets foggy even, it's no water comes down. It's, that's the picture here. The promise of something, the promise of, I promise you nourishment, I promise you I'll meet your needs, I promise you I will give you what you need. And then only to discover that you go away Still thirsty, very thirsty. You go away unsatisfied. This is their unsatisfying message of the false teachers. They make promises they do not keep. They give you these hollow, empty messages that cannot satisfy the soul. They give you not water, but dirt, sand, and sawdust. The spring is dried up. And they talk like, like it's going to do something, and it does nothing, does nothing for you. 
And this happens in a lot of religious meetings. This happens in a lot of churches where souls that are parched, they go there to find water and they leave unfulfilled. They leave unfulfilled because the spring has no water, the cloud has no rain. Jude 12 says these false teachers are clouds without water. Clouds without water. You said they have nothing to offer, folks. Understand this. They do not know God. They do not know Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, no matter how much they say they do. Therefore, they're not able to give a life-giving message. They're not able to preach a life-giving message. Most of them speak, don't even speak from the Word of God. If they do, it's just some proof text. But they don't give the soul what it needs. They're, they're whitewashed tombs, as Jesus called the false teachers. Whitewashed tombs. They might look good in appearance. They might be all nice and, and clean and white on the outside. But inside that tomb is nothing but dead men's bones. They're empty. And they have no life-giving message to offer. That is very important to remember. You remember in John chapter 4, the scene with the Samaritan woman at the well? And you remember Jesus goes up to the woman to get water? And they have this discussion, and you get down to about verse 13 of John 4, and that's when you have the discussion about the water. He says, if you drink this water from this well, you're going to get thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I have to offer, you will never thirst again. That's the water I want. But that's not the water a false teacher can give. You see it again in John chapter 7. He who thirsts, he says, come to me, believe in me, and I will give you water. Talking about the Holy Spirit. I will give you water in your innermost being. You see, that's what our soul craves for. That's what our soul wants. I want something that touches my soul that fills my soul. I don't want anything short of that. Augustine said this, thou hast made us for thyself, talking to God. Augustine says this, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Did you hear that? That's profound. My heart will never find rest in anything but the living and true God. My heart is restless. Before I came to Christ, I had a restless heart. Always trying to find peace. Always trying to find calmness. Money doesn't satisfy. A good family does not even satisfy. Your job is not going to satisfy. God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. And only the message of the gospel can satisfy this inner longing and thirst. Only the word of God is able to reach down into the depths of my heart and bring that satisfaction. Second, we saw it in 1 Peter. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like newborn babes, t- talking to believers, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. A baby wants one thing. A baby wants milk. 
Potato chips are not going to do it for a baby. It's milk of the word. Same thing for you and I. Same thing for you and I. You know, you think about messages you hear today. Liberal theologians, listen to some of these points. They offer a Bible with errors. Okay, well, we're off to a great start. Liberal theologians offer a Bible with errors. They say the Bible cannot be trusted. They offer a Christ that is not God. They did not pay for our sins, did not rise from the dead. They offer a God that tells us the best that we can do in life is fight for social justice, for social gospel issues. And that's their message. A Jesus that cannot save you and has nothing to do with eternity. This is all their ears. You got to make the most of this life. And they might give you some ways to do that. But that is not a message that satisfies the soul. That is not a message that leaves you with any kind of hope, any kind of conviction of how my life can change, any kind of love, greater love for God and desire for God. It doesn't create in me a worshipful heart to God. All it does is leaves me flat and empty and tell tell evangelists get on there and just jump up and down and and you think about the message they're giving you got to understand a lot of times when people talk about jesus and salvation they are not talking about the same jesus we're talking about and they're not talking about the same salvation we're talking about It's interesting in the book Agony of Deceit by Michael Horton, he talks about some of these word of faith preachers who say things like this. Ken Copeland says, Jesus was a carbon copy of Adam. No different than Adam. He doesn't say Jesus is God. No, Jesus is just Adam. It's true that Jesus is the second Adam, yes, but Jesus is not Adam. And they say Adam and Eve were put in the garden to make little gods out of everybody. They just might go and create little gods. We're all little gods. Just think of that. That's what the Mormons basically teach, folks. Plurality of gods. And you're on this planet, to, you're going to be given your own planet one day, and you can populate that with more gods. That's Mormon teaching. We got a temple in town. You better get your Mormon understanding down when they come knocking at your door. They don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And they certainly don't believe in the right view of the Godhead. There's only one God. Copeland goes on to say, we've got to start acting like little gods so we can manifest the kingdom of God. So I, I, my only point on that is they're offering this Jesus who is not God. There's no salvation in that message. If, if, God, if Jesus is not the eternal son of God, then he cannot do anything about my sin. He cannot satisfy the wrath of God for my sin. If he's not the eternal God, because no man can do that in my place. Only God can do that in my place. There's one guy named Casey Street in that book. Excuse me, Casey Treat. He was an evangelist, and he had his whole congregation. Imagine if I did this with you. He had his whole congregation say together, 
we are an exact duplicate of God. He had him repeat that. The first time, everybody was going, hmm, don't know about that. But gradually, he got them worked up, and they were all saying it. We are an exact duplicate of God. We are an exact, some mantra. You got it? When God looks in a mirror, he sees me. When I look in a mirror, I see God. That, that's blasphemy, but it's also empty words. It's not, it's not a fountain that satisfies anybody's thirst. It doesn't satisfy the soul. There's, there's no real issues of life talked about. There's no talking about repentance of sin. That's, that's your number one issue right there. You're turning from your sin in salvation or in sanctification. And how I deal with my sin, and how I'm forgiven, and how, uh, how I can have a right relationship with God, and how I can deal with my guilt, and how I can forgive other people, and, and all of that. Those are the real issues of life. That's where we live. That's what we need. They don't say anything about that because they are waterless springs. They are clouds without rain. And you can leave their auditorium as high as a kite emotionally, but you will come down from that emotional high and you will realize how empty it all is. And you will have to go again the next night to get the high back. And you will keep having to go to get the high back because you lose that high really quick. Anytime you have those emotions, you know that how emotions work. You get high and you're down. You go on that vacation, you're high. You come home, you're down. Disney World, high. Then you ask yourself, what am I doing here? This is crazy. <laughs> you know how emotions work. You don't depend on emotions. But that's what they depend on, that you'll just keep on keeping the high and be distracted from the content of what they're saying. Empty. Empty messages. And very man-centered messages. Nothing about eternity. Nothing about the glory and majesty and greatness of our God that we sang about this morning. None of that. It's all about me and, and you and singing the same verse 50 times over and over to get you worked up and into some mantra. And that's why he says at the end of verse 17, their destiny, black darkness, has been reserved. And like I said, he's inserted that back in 3, 14, 15, all those verses. Just a reminder that they are doomed for the gloomiest parts of hell. They're apostates. Understand that. They're apostates. These guys claim to know Christ. They claim that they put their faith and trust in Christ. But you know what? They're like Judas. And we'll talk about this next week. They're like Judas. They claim to know it. They once were of us, but now they are no longer of us. That's a Judas-type Judas believer right there. Made the claim did all that, was part of the church, infiltrated the church, in the church, looked like, sounded like, affirmed things, and then apostate. Because he never was of us. Never was of us. True believers don't lose their salvation. These guys have never been true believers. And that's why they're in hell. And that's why hell awaits them. 
So the question is, if this is true, why are so many people attracted to them? Why are so many people attracted to them? And don't underestimate this. As I said earlier in this series, they are very popular. Christian bookstore, I used to, when we used to have Christian bookstores, I remember going in there always asking them, why do you put those books at the front? Why do you put Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and all these people, why do you put their books in the front? And T.D. Jakes, I said, why do you put these books in the front? And they said, because they sell. They're our best sellers. And that's no excuse, but that just shows you how popular they are. And why are they so popular? Notice in verse 18, Peter answers that question. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. He gives three reasons here why they're so popular. First, because they speak arrogant words. They speak swelling words. Words are swelled up. Big words. Big words. You don't even know the meaning of the big words they speak. But they speak big and flowery words and boastful words, inflated words, big talk. Big words, eloquent, large vocabulary. They're eloquent speakers. They are. They're, they're, they know how to talk. They know how to carry an audience. They, they know how to do all of those things. And they use these words, inflated words, to, to communicate their message <laughs> that is absolutely without content. You listen to them and you think, wow, that sounded Deep. Until you start thinking about it, that wasn't deep at all. But they use the, the words that sound, makes it sound so deep. There's an interesting verse in Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 6, 16. He says this. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. I like this. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls but they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah is saying, hey, ask for the theology of the dead guys. Pull out the old theology books. Because they, they talked about the ways of life. And these false teachers said, we will not we will not walk in it. And that's, what, that's what's going on. These guys never aligned themselves with the great theologians of the past. They say, we want to forget those guys. We got new messages, new words, new things. Don't talk about the Puritans. Don't talk about Barnhouse and, and Tozier and, and all of those greats of the earlier centuries and D.L. Moody and Spurgeon, those are dead guys. We don't want the theology of the ancient past. We want something new, fresh rain. They don't want to associate themselves with that. They don't want to be in that camp at all. You can ask, just ask a pastor sometimes, what books do you read? What theologians do you like? And if everything is 1970 and forward, <laughs> now I'm not saying there's some really good books written since 1970, I'm just saying if there's no appetite 
for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith as exegeted through great theologians in the past. And then tells you something about them. Vain emptiness and hot air is all they want to give you. Nothing deep. Nothing deep. Just trying to impress you with oratory, eloquent oratory. Their, their intent is not to reach the mind. It really isn't. Their seduction, and this is part of their seduction. They want to captivate people. That verse tells us, verse, verse uh, 18 tells us, fleshly desires by sensuality. They're not appealing to the mind. They, they want to go to the base nature of, of men and women. It's how you feel. Are you feeling good when you leave here? Do you feel great? They, they want to keep the audience coming so they never say anything that the audience would not want to hear. Like, like things like positive confession are things, wow, I like that idea. You know, I can just control events by thinking positively. Or name it and claim it. Wow, I can, you know, just name it and God will give it to me. Or, you know, health and wealth, all those things. But golly, don't you dare talk about sin and repentance of sin, the need to repent of sin. Don't talk about things like that because the crowds won't come. They don't want to hear that. Appeal to their base nature. Their greed. Their greed. Appeal to that. Their covetousness. Appeal to that. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 2 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Hold your hand in way back to 2 Peter in just a moment. Here, here the Apostle Paul tells us about his speaking ministry, and I just thought this was kind of interesting. If you recall in our study of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians loved philosophers. They loved philosophers. In fact, they wanted Paul to be more like the philosophers. They would gather in the marketplace to listen to the newest philosophy. That was the, the habit of the Greek culture. Let's go listen and be provoked in our thinking by the newest philosophy of the day. So they'd go to the Agora and, and listen to the philosophers. And they spoke so eloquently, and they said things with such uh, high-mindedness, and, and oratory was incredible. They were known for that. And... Uh, one of the things Paul wanted was, excuse me, one of the things they wanted Paul to do was, Paul, could you fix up the gospel a little bit to make it more appealing like that? Could you kind of dress it up with some of these, these great oratorical skills, you know, and, and, and make it more like the philosophers? Could you sound more like them when you come to town? And Paul, look at Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. They, they, wanted, they wanted him to, like the philosophers. For I determined to know nothing among you, verse 2 says, except Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Ugh, that's not an appealing message. Crucified Savior, really? Okay. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I did not want your faith to rest on my ability to persuade you. I did not want you, my, my, your, your, uh, your 
faith to rest on me in any way. I was not trying to draw you to me and the persuasiveness with which I could speak. I wanted to be out of the way so that your faith would rest on the demonstration of the power of God and his spirit working in you. I didn't want you to be impressed with me, have faith in my speaking ability. See, these people were attracted to to teachers. They tried to line themselves up with Paul and Cephas and Apollos. They were just, they were were really people focused. I, I want to associate myself with this great preacher. And so that people do that with these false teachers we see today as well. They sound so deep. They use inflated words. Liberals do this. Liberals use scholarly words. Words that you listen to them and you do not know what they were just talking about. It's just, but, you know, they, they, they just intimidate the average person. They must be telling us the truth. It just sounds so, so up there. They flavor with some things you're aware of, but, other big t- but they're really, it's not a message that's God-centered at all. You ever know, notice who ABC News and CBS and all of them go to and NPR, all of them go to when they want to discuss religious issues in society? They go to the liberal theologians who don't believe the Bible, who know nothing about Christianity, the truth of Christianity, who don't know God to get, every once in a while they'll ask a conservative, but re- very rarely, They want to get the opinion of the extremely educated with all kinds of diplomas in front of their name that there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying just as if that is the only, that's where you're going to get the truth. And we say you're not going to get the truth there. Academic theologians puffed up in their knowledge. No one knows what they're talking about. They're arrogant words. And notice the second thing. Go back to 2 Peter the message is very appealing to the sinful desires of the human heart. And I'm just going to, this is, this is very important right here. I'm fixing to say to you right now, so listen closely. They entice by fleshly desires. They bait people. They try to bait people to lure them in. And they, like I said before, they just want to do whatever you want. Whatever you want to hear, they will say. Um... They lure people in by luring to their sinful nature. I said this earlier. To their pride, to their covetousness, even to their sexual desires. And they want you to embrace a religion that doesn't says you don't have to give up anything. It's like one commentator said, it's the rock star who, the rock star who said, I'm now born again, but it will not change my lifestyle or my music. Have you heard that? I've heard that. People say that. This is just one example here, but yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm born again now, but it changes nothing about me on the outside. Really? Born again? Then why in the world? Waste of time. If you're born from above, my friends, it changes you. It changes you. Nobody has to coerce you. Nobody has to beg you. Nobody has to say, get a hunger for this. No, you got it. You come out of that experience and you're hungry for food. You're thirsty and you're desiring of food. You're like a baby when it's born. You want truth. They, they appeal to your, uh, the whole 
whole self-esteem thing that went on for years, still is, very popular, appeals to our pride. You gotta feel good about yourself. You become the important, most important person. It's the focus is on you, your significance. Uh, false teachers preach that kind of a gospel that's just enticing to hear. People can be self-centered and not Christ-centered in that environment. Never calls you to repentance, just keeps superficial, tickles ears. And that was the problem with the seeker-sensitive movement that we had on the scene for years and still is in some places. It, it, it was always promoting, uh, especially by false teachers. Some people weren't false teachers who were promoting that, but the point is uh, a lot of this was fed uh, as, pe- as pastors began changing what they were giving, telling people what they needed to hear and started letting people determine what they wanted to hear. That was a seeker-sensitive movement. What is appealing to you? Taking surveys of an audience and saying, what do you like about church? What do you want church to be? What do you want us to do that will make you feel better about being here? Those kinds of questions. It became like a restaurant. Have it your way. You know, what do you want from the menu? You get to choose. You get to decide. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. That's pretty clear. If we're not doing that here, we're not doing anything right. You know, nothing's right about this place. If we're not word-centered and God-centered, we're not doing it right at all. Uh, Everything else is just secondary. Irrelevant. If we're not preaching the word, don't confront anybody. Don't be confrontational in your preaching. And then here's the third way. Third way that false teachers attract people is they go after people. Now get this. They go after people. How, I'm not sure exactly how you would want to interpret this in terms of which commentary you want to go with because I've read two different interpretations of this, but I think the idea is still the same. Some interpret those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. He's talking about young believers False teachers prey especially on immature believers. They look for immature believers who have just barely, barely into this, have escaped the errors of their former ways. And false teachers go after them. The cults go after them. The Jehovah Witnesses go after them because they know they're not grounded. They very rarely will go after a mature believer. Because a mature believer can recognize it. But the cults look for those who are still young in their faith. And that's why we would say, get rooted and grounded in your faith. Listen to good Bible teachers on the radio. Get you a study, good study Bible. The MacArthur Study Bible is excellent, but there are some others that are good as well. I'm just saying, get those tools in your hands because recognize this, false teachers are seeking you out. And you know, the second way that people interpret this, and it's it's a very, very real uh, and true way to look at this, barely escape from the ones who live in error, basically referring to people who come, who come to religion because they are, they are beaten down by their own sin, 
They're living with a lot of guilt. They have a bad marriage or they have a bad relationships with somebody or they have something going on, some, something in their life going on, some trauma going on in their life and they're looking for answers. And that's who these false teachers especially prey on is people like that. They may not even be believers yet, but they're saying, I want to go to the church. I want to go to religion. I want to find the answers. And here's this false teacher standing there saying, ah, I got the answer for you. You see that in verse 19? I promise you freedom. It's very possible either one of these works. Either one of these works. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. That's the problem. They themselves are slaves of corruption. And then he uses an axiom or a, or a truism for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. He himself is enslaved to some of these things. You take, you take someone who is caught up in, uh, with, with, say for example, that they're having difficulties in their, in their marriage, for example. And this false teacher standing there, he says, oh, come, let me counsel you. Let me counsel you and help you. Let me help you with this problem. You see what he's doing? I've got an answer. I'm a male. I have an answer for you, female, on how to fix your marriage. How to make your marriage better. And so he lures them in by sensuality. She may not know his motive, but he knows his motive. He sees an opportunity. And I say this because this is happening all over the place. Even the name of biblical counseling, people, people lure people like that in. I've got, I've got this knowledge. I've got this uh, biblical knowledge. Let me help you. False counselors, false teachers, seek to lure people in by appealing and enticing through their sensualities. And sexual immorality, as I read to you earlier in First and Second Peter, these guys have eyes of adultery. They have eyes of adultery. They're predators. They're predators. See that in verse 14. And they're enslaved themselves and they can't help anybody out of it slavery because they're enslaved let me just read to you something from a commentary uh, from uh, a commentary on second peter this is something i think you need to hear and those listening this morning need to hear i thought this was very helpful and very good it's a, a word of warning to the would-be victims of lustful sensual enticers false teachers They claim to be representatives of Jesus Christ. And these are some telltale signs of sensuality that prey on women. Let me read some of these to you. This is the kind, ladies, this is the kind of men, false teachers, that you want to avoid. Particularly if you're going through some vulnerability in your life. You want to understand that that teacher could be a seducer. if you see these telltale signs. One, does that person, does that teacher frequently talk about and is he preoccupied with sexual manners, matters in his personal conversation? 
Do those kinds of, does that kind of subject just roll off his tongue unguarded when he talks? When somebody starts to talk to you like that, and they say they represent God, you need to be very, very cautious because the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Secondly, a preoccupation with sexual matters and subjects in the pulpit. In other words, when they have a certain freedom about what they say in public, you can tell if you listen to, a man, what a, to what a man says and what comes glibly and easily out of his mouth. Pulpit talk that is explicit and without restraint is a dead giveaway that you're dealing with a seducer to whom those kinds of terms are very familiar. It just comes too easy off his tongue. No shame in any of it. Another lack of restraint is immoral media. I am amazed sometimes when I'm gathered together with people in religious circles when they tell me the movies that they have seen and that there are no conditions that I, excuse me, going from there, when they tolerate immorality visually without a sense of shame and revulsion, you need to be aware. Talked about, I, I watched this R-rated, if I super and told you, I watched this R-rated movie, it was great, I watched this X-rated movie, it was even better. I mean, just think about that. But that's how they talk. Another thing to look for is a deep, a lack of deep seriousness about sin, a certain making light of sin, a frivolous joking about things that are heinous, distasteful to God, which in effect means there's familiarity with that kind of stuff. It just comes off the tongue. Once again, it just comes off the tongue so easily and doesn't offend or shock anymore because that's common stuff. Watch for the lack of deep seriousness about sin. Beware of the man also who does, not, who does much counseling of attractive women with marital problems. He does it alone. Pastors who make themselves available for that kind of counseling and doing it alone and asking private questions, especially about the physical relationship between you and your husband, beware of that man. And wanting to know details about that, beware of that man. Another, be very concerned with someone in spiritual leadership who is preoccupied with physical appearance, who is preoccupied with clothing and jewelry and cars and houses and wealth and fancy hotels and fancy restaurants. You say, why? Because it betrays a very fleshly approach to life, and it's very difficult to compartmentalize the flesh. If it's running amok in one area, chances are it's running amok in another area as well. You can't just compartmentalize everything. Everything affects everything. Be very wary of someone in spiritual leadership who is rarely heard speaking lovingly and graciously of his wife, who is rarely seen with his wife in public, who never expresses publicly love for his wife. Be wary, women, of men who give you gifts. Beware of a man, any man, who gives gifts to any woman other than his wife. Beware of a man who rejects a high degree of personal accountability. Sin seeks to be alone. He doesn't like a crowd. It doesn't even like anybody to be around him. Beware of men whose preaching is shallow and who seem never to say anything new in the sense of understanding the Scripture because they're not studying the Word of God. Be aware of hugging and kissing. It can be innocent and it can even be appropriate at times. That's not his point. His point is when it's focused on you and you alone. Same people done often. 
be very wary of preachers who are more concerned with relationships to people than they are with people's relationships to God and whose emphasis in preaching seems always relational and infrequently, if at all, God's word. Beware of preachers who fail to preach on the holiness of God and his hatred for sin. Beware of preachers who emphasize feelings and emotions rather than doctrine who are shallow and who are not profound. He says, if you find yourself around this kind of man, even though he purports to be your spiritual leader, my advice to you is to run in the other direction. Amen to that. Amen to that. It's pretty clear in this chapter that Peter's concerned believers don't be taken in by false teachers who offer a false hope and who have corrupt motives. That's his concern. Who offer you freedom, but because they're not free, they can't help anybody else get free. They're enslaved and they want to enslave you. But thanks be to God that we have true freedom. We have freedom in Christ who has set us free. Who set us free. He has set us free from ourselves. He has set us free from our sin. He has set us free from the judgment of sin. We're truly free in Christ. And that's what gives us life, and that's what gives us hope. And let's celebrate that this morning as we come to the communion table. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you, God, for your word. God, may we be recognizing these things are in our midst. They're all around us. There are people who abuse the office of pastor, people who abuse the office of, of teacher, of counselor in the church. They're false. May we use this, these passages we've been looking at in Second Peter as the grid by which we can make evaluation and recognize and know your opinions of those who do such things. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.